Welcome to the Small Nonprofit Podcast with down-to-earth practical advice on how to get things done in your small organization. You are going to change the world and we can help. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Cindy, your host. And while usually I'd be joined by my co-host, Anya McGlynn, I'm actually here solo at the Econuary Conus Conference. Um, this episode, excuse the sounds, uh, it's bustling here. And I'm really excited to share with you this, this next uh, podcast episode, which is a recording of one of the sessions all about leadership for a new uh, innovation and leadership for a new economy. And so many of what Amanda, the session host, talks about rings true to my experience. And I'm excited to share it with you. Uh, definitely pay attention to some of what she says around giving and receiving feedback, around failing up. Uh, there's so much great content in here around how to lead uh, in a sector that's trying to do good. Happy listening and stay tuned for our very next session, which will hopefully be available shortly. Integrity. In this framework, how I have chosen to define integrity is by dividing it up into our why and our say-do ratio. There are plenty of resources on identifying your why, and Simon Sinek, S-I-N-E-K, does a great job of identifying your why. So I'm not going to reinvent the wheel, but what I will do is uh, I will contextualize and provide a brief overview and set the stage. So if we are to have meaningful impact, we need to know and understand our why. It is critical to figure out our why because it is our foundation. Our anchor, our values are tied to it, and it is what grounds us in times of distress. I want to read an organization's mission and value statement that I find especially meaningful uh, to drive home the point of impact. Ready? Integrity, respect, communication, excellence. We treat others as we would like to be treated ourselves. We do not tolerate abusive or disrespectful treatment. Ruthlessness, callousness, and arrogance don't belong here. Every time I read this, I always think, wow, these guys don't mince any words. They know exactly what organizational culture they're going for. Any ideas whose mission and value statement this is? Enron's mission and value statement. Respect. Integrity, communication, excellence. We treat others as we would like to be treated ourselves. Well, I hope you're getting that treatment. There's no point in having fancy words, fancy corporate documents, fancy policies that state beautiful things if you don't follow through. Part of the integrity bubble is following through on what you say you're going to do. Your say-do ratio. Corporate documents are created on an organizational level, but keep in mind they are enacted on a personal level. The follow-through happens on the individual level, and if you are the leader in an organization, a manager, a quiet influencer, it is on the individual level that tone setting happens. This is where leading by example becomes critical. Asking people how they are or how their kids' recital was over the weekend means a lot and goes a long way. It is in these small moments that we manufacture and concretize culture. 
And think about what this means in an organizational context and how these small transactions make for big impact. Our actions do not have to be larger than life to create meaning. People are watching and taking their cues from you. For the word integrity to mean something, to be more than just a word that's bandied about, your say-do ratio needs to equal one at all times, because this is how we live our values and stick to our why. Now, if you've committed to something and you can no longer keep that commitment, use communication as a tool to explain why you can no longer keep that commitment. Things change, and this is understandable. So, our second bubble is action. And inside this bubble, we have engaging with an entrepreneurial mindset. If our previous bubble was the what bubble, this is the how bubble. And we'll start with innovation and understanding what innovation really means. Innovation is not just about creating new tech or about building products and services. Innovation is about doing things differently than we have always done them. If we offer a new service or have, offer a new product and no one uses it, then do we really have innovation? Innovation is not about offering shiny new things. It is about problem solving. It is about transformation. Innovation is about leveraging supply and demand in new ways. Hotels, hostels, inns, bed and breakfasts have always existed in one form or another. And we've operated for a long time using the same business models. Airbnb just expanded what that business model is and created a new process to serve and meet this need. Innovation can take the form of simplifying a process or expanding and making access easy. So, if that is how we define innovation, what does it mean to engage with an entrepreneurial mindset? A few things come up in, under this umbrella. Finding and filling gaps, moving fast, incremental growth, and I'm about to use the F word, so for those of you who may not like the F word, you may... Yes, exactly, cover your ears, perfect. <laughs> Failing forward. Identifying gaps. Have you ever found yourself thinking, it would be so awesome if? It would be so awesome if we did that. It would be so awesome if they offered that service or that product. Or in a work context, I wish our organization did that. When you catch yourself thinking these thoughts, the it would be so awesome if, wouldn't it be cool if, I want you to stop and do the following. One, celebrate. Because this is your entrepreneurial self speaking up. Number two, ask yourselves, why don't we do these things? What are the barriers holding us back? Number three, and once you've identified why you don't do these things, then let's figure out how we can do these things. At work, has a customer or a client ever asked you for a service and you've responded with, oh, I'm so sorry, we don't do that here? Has this ever happened? Or a colleague or someone you work with said, hey, I have this idea. How come we don't do this? And have you found yourself thinking or saying, or have you heard someone in your organization respond with something like, oh, new person, let me share with you my worldly wisdom. That's not how we work in this organization. When you catch yourself thinking these thoughts or having these thoughts or responding in these ways, and be honest, we do think these things. It does happen. I want you to stop and do, do a couple of things. Number one, 
Recognize that you're killing your entrepreneurial self. These are gaps. Then ask yourself, what lessons have I learned along the way that have caused me to respond in such a way? What structures are in place where I feel I need to maintain things as they are? And through this process of examination, you could come up with some very solid and valid reasons why you continue to do things the way you do, like washing your hands before you prepare food. But I'd like you guys to stretch and be uncomfortable and ask yourselves, why don't we do these things? What are the barriers holding us back? When you have identified gaps like this, these are also great opportunities to examine structural barriers that inhibit or in some cases prohibit innovation and Kaizen. Kaizen is continuous improvement. In Japanese, broken down, Kai means change and Zen means good. In order to fully engage with an entrepreneurial mindset so that we can add value and have an impact on our staff, our community, um, our colleagues' lives, and to support innovative practices, we need to test ideas so that we can constantly adapt to changing circumstances. And how we go about doing this is through moving fast, incremental growth, and failing forward. When you hear questions like, do you provide the service, or how come we don't do things how come we don't do that here? Recognize that this is a need going unmet. And this is a form of feedback. And if you want to stay relevant to your customers and to your community and listen to the feedback your staff and colleagues are providing you, you need to employ the principles of Kaizen. With Kaizen, you leverage opportunities for growth before they turn into problems, increase your capacity to eliminate problems, and be proactive in fixing issues before they turn into nightmares. Using the Kaizen methodology, issues are addressed immediately by staff who have the authority and the autonomy to fix the problems. The knowledge and pride of staff are considered the greatest resource for controlling and improving quality and productivity. Included in the principles of Kaizen are rigorous and reliable feedback mechanisms. So, How do we use Kaizen? Where do we start? While there are lots of ways to implement a Kaizen strategy, the one that I'm pushing is one of the simplest, and we can start with a four-step process. Identify, plan, execute, and feedback and assessment. For identifying, which is step one, This is the first step to leveraging the opportunity for improvement. You've already had access to rich feedback that you get through your customers and or your employees or colleagues. Customer and employee surveys and complaint forms are opportunities to initiate the Kaizen cycle. If you're not getting this kind of feedback, especially from your employees and your colleague and your staff, you need to be concerned because it may be time to look at your organizational culture. Planning is step two. Building on what we learned from our feedback, uh, we need to look at how we can improve current ways of doing things. If you don't think your processes, services, products need improvement, it's time to circle back to step one of Kaizen, which is identify. So a lot of us get stuck in the planning stages because we feel as though we need to get everything just so. We feel as though we need everything to be perfect before we can execute. We don't need to wait for perfection because that train is never coming. Our goal with Kaizen is to move fast and leverage incremental growth and improvement. This is where we replicate the agile methodology of software development. This is where 
we step into step three, which is execution. And what this means is that you fail early, you fail fast, and you fail cheaply. Rolling out in smaller iterations instead of waiting for everything to be perfect. Cutting losses when testing reveals something isn't working so that you can pivot or try another solution. Failing fast is often associated with the lean startup methodology where entrepreneurs must investigate, experiment, test, iterate, and develop new products and services. The cornerstones are prototype quickly, get it to market or get it to your customers to gauge success, use the feedback to build the next iteration. What we're trying to avoid with the fail fast and fail cheaply philosophy is the sunk cost effect, also known as throwing good money after bad. It's in our nature to avoid failure at all costs. And one of the ways we defer the inevitable is by devoting more resources to failing programs, services, and products instead of cutting our losses and moving on. Failing fast takes the stigma out of failure by emphasizing the importance of knowledge gained through incremental iterative processes and learning what does not work so that when we try our prob- the next time, our probability of success increases. The fourth step is assessing the results and making use of feedback. This step is critical. As identifying, executing, and especially in the planning phase, you need to build in feedback mechanisms so that you can assess results. It is in the planning stage that you will need to identify your goals and objectives. How will you measure success? What do your key performance indicators look like? How will you follow through? Who will follow through? Whose head is on the line if there isn't follow-up? This is where you will also need to listen, not just to your customers, but to your staff and colleagues as well. One of the tenets of Kaizen is leveraging employee feedback by giving them the autonomy and the accountability to make decisions, changes, and corrections as they execute. Side note, it's very important to capture the learnings and changes your staff are making as the iterations move on, as you're rolling out new products and processes in some form of centralized knowledge management system. Paper and pen works just as well because what you don't want happening is you hear from your customers or your community that something isn't working, that there is a gap. You put your team together to figure out a solution. The team comes up with a great solution. The solution is executed. You want to be able to hold on to the information that you're collecting. One of the benefits of Kaizen is because you build an accountability and autonomy for your employees, you get increased productivity and a highly engaged workforce. And what you're creating here is a virtuous cycle where your customers feel like they are heard because you're acting on their suggestions and feedback and the gaps are being filled. And you have staff who are highly engaged and committed and processes and services that are consistently and constantly being worked on and improved upon. The last and fourth step feeds back into the identifying stage of the Kaizen cycle, and it's kick-started again. What happens here is that when you create an environment in which failure is destigmatized and the notion of failing is turned into failing forward, you have reframed it into a learning opportunity. You are building a risk-resilient workforce. And the outcome is that you have created a culture of resilience and supported your colleagues in failing forward in their development and their growth. We need to work on changing our perceptions of failure because it keeps us safe and it prevents us from trying new things. We need to experiment, incorporate valuable feedback into how we do so that we can innovate and create impactful change for our customers and the communities we serve.
A caveat before we continue. If you're sitting there thinking, oh my God, if we incorporated every piece of feedback that Dodo BK comes up with, we're going to have some very angry customers. The speaker accepts your feedback and responds with, in order for this to work, you need solid recruitment practices and performance and coaching management practices in place. This will only work if you have alignment across the organization and all of your staff are facing in the same direction. And this begins with the hard work of being a leader and leading by example. We also need to understand that failure is not an event, but a process of learning and growth, just like success is not a destination, but a journey. And all of this begins with the desire to be teachable. And this brings us to our third bubble, growth. Stop the podcast just for a second. I just wanted to take a second to remind our listeners uh, who may not know that this uh, podcast is brought to you by The Good Partnership and Charity Village. So a lot of people don't know that both of our organizations are deeply committed to making sure that there are tons of great resources available to small nonprofits in our sector. And so I want you to take a minute to go and access some of those great free resources. For The Good Partnership, you can visit thegoodpartnership.com and specifically on our homepage or visit thegoodpartnership.com slash guide, you can download a free resource that outlines all different kinds of fundraising strategies you might want to consider for your organization. And for charityvillage.com, there's so many webinars and, of course, the podcast, um, articles, the list is endless. And, of course, you can post jobs there, volunteer positions, uh, posting is free. So make sure that you are checking out both websites to deepen your learning and continue to access great free stuff. Great tips, Cindy. Now on with the podcast. In the growth bubble, we have feedback and orthogonal thinking. How does it feel when BK comes up to you and says, hey, don't take this personally, but don't take this the wrong way, but. While in the last section, we dealt with feedback to stay relevant and innovative and keep our processes and organizations stronger, in this section, we will deal with feedback that is directed at us. Feedback is crucial. And so far, a lot of literature has focused on improving the skills of the feedback giver. But that's not where we need the most support, as improving the skills of the feedback giver won't accomplish much if the receiver is not ready to listen, if the receiver isn't able to absorb what is said. It is the receiver who controls the feedback, whether the feedback is let in or kept out. It is a receiver who has to make sense of what they are hearing and who decides whether or not to change. We need to stop treating feedback as something that only should be pushed and instead improve our ability to pull feedback. The skills needed to receive feedback are distinct and learnable. And they include being able to identify and manage the emotions triggered by the feedback and extract value from the criticism, even when it is poorly delivered. What makes receiving feedback hard? The process strikes a tension between two core human needs. 
the need to learn and grow, number one, and two, to be accepted just as we are. As a result, even seemingly benign suggestions can leave you feeling angry, anxious, badly treated, or profoundly threatened. Think about receiving a poor performance review. How does that make you feel? What happens within us when we receive less than positive feedback? Truth triggers are set off by the content of the feedback. When assessments or advice are seem off base, unhelpful, simply untrue, you feel wronged, exasperated, indignant. Relationship triggers are tripped by the person providing you the feedback. And your focus is on now on the giver. So your focus is on BK and not what she is saying. It is also tripped by your previous interactions with the giver. While you may reject the coaching coming from BK, if it came from Linda, you'd have no problem listening to it. Identity triggers are all about your relationship with yourself. Whether the feedback is right or wrong, wise or witless, it can be devastating if it causes you your sense of who you are to come undone. And you'll struggle with feeling overwhelmed, defensive, or off balance. All of these responses are natural and reasonable. And in some cases, they are unavoidable. The solution isn't to pretend that you're not having these emotional reactions. It is to recognize what's happening and learn how to derive benefit from the feedback, even if it sets off one or more of the emotional triggers. Taking feedback well is a process of filtering of recognizing what to let in and what, you know, to push out. It's about understanding and getting to the bottom of what your boss or BK is trying to share. So how do we deal with all of this? The first step in receiving feedback is just to listen with an open mind and an open heart. And this will take practice for some of us, lots and lots of practice to listen instead of think about when, when someone's speaking to you, Um, Are you listening to them or are you responding to them in your head? And what the difference is between listening and responding. Step two is self-awareness. Start paying attention to your mind and your body's responses to what is being said. What is your inner voice saying? Where are you feeling the feedback? Is it in your mind? Is it in your tummy? Step three unpacking the feedback. And this may require distance. You may need to take a couple of hours, a couple of minutes, a couple of days to unpack what has been said and to figure out what has, what is going on. And this is hard because what you're doing here is dealing with emotion and taking the feedback apart. What you're also doing is disentangling the what of the feedback from the who. So trying to understand what BK said and separating it just, you know, from who you think BK is. It's easy for us to spot the wrongness of feedback, but part of step three is also to find what is right about the feedback and how you can use that. Once you've taken the time to unpack the feedback, you can move on to step four, which is following up and experimenting. Always assume that your feedback givers need help with giving feedback and asking clear and curious questions ideally without a defensive tone, which is, you know, which takes practice. Uh, Things like asking, hey, when you said I'm too blank or I'm not blank enough, 
What exactly did you mean? Can you give me an example? Um, When did I do that last? Uh, What specifically are you suggesting that I do differently? So your feedback giver, BK, wholeheartedly shares, and you learn something new about yourself, but you're not sure whether or not to accept what BK has suggested. But you're not ready to dismiss it just yet. What do you do? You engage in small experiments. When someone gives you advice, test it out. If it works, beautiful. If it doesn't, try something else. Tweak your approach. Go back to your feedback giver and say, hey, when you said this, this is what I went and tried. Is that what you meant? And these are the results I noticed. Or you can decide to end the experiment. Your growth depends upon your ability to pull value from criticism. Your colleagues and bosses may be good or bad at providing feedback, but you are the most important factor in your own development. And if you're determined to learn from whatever feedback you get, this is, this is fantastic. This is so important to our growth. And include, included in the growth bubble is orthogonal thinking and doing. So what orthogonal thinking means is you're drawing from a variety and perhaps seemingly unrelated perspectives to reach new insight. It is a momentary blurring of boundaries to see what might emerge. The benefits of orthogonal thinking speak to the importance of diversity in supporting collective intelligence and resilience. So how do you enact this? How do you start to leverage the benefits of orthogonal thinking so that you can have Kaizen and innovation? Take a course unrelated to your job at least once a year. And it doesn't have to be this long, drawn-out thing. It just has to be be meaningful engagement that exposes you to new concepts and new ways of seeing and new ways of doing things. What we're going for with orthogonal thinking is stretching the mind with newness, with concepts from other industries and fields of study. Because keep in mind, email wasn't invented by someone who worked at the post office. The light bulb wasn't invented by someone who, who was a candlestick maker. Examples of these courses include mortuary science, economics, the art of horseshoeing, statistics, small engine repair, marketing, an entry-level physics or securities course. I'm not saying that you have to get 75%, just meaningfully engage with the content, with the learning opportunity. And while this may seem like a short-term strategy, it will yield long-term benefits. Now we move to our last bubble, the bubble I've dedicated my life to, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, and how we build and foster cultures and organizations of inclusion and belonging. So we'll start with definitions. Diversity in organizations specifically is about numbers and representation. It has been defined as something to comply with and something that is the right thing to do. It's an ethical imperative leading to business priorities that provide organizations with with competitive advantages, an absolute priority that provides strategic value. There is value in all of these definitions and practices, and some scholars have argued that the downside to diversity and diversity practices is that they are traditionally focused on 
reducing biases and increasing representation. But this is a great start. This is where we start. And yes, increasing representation is the first step and it is critical. These are great practices. However, it, they fall short if our focus isn't expanded to inclusion as an outcome of diversity practices. Simply put, diversity is being invited to the party. Inclusion is being asked to dance. And if you don't know Vernay Myers, she is fantastic. Her TED Talks are amazing. Check it out. Absolutely amazing. So inclusion is about impact. It must be cultivated. The uniqueness of the individual is celebrated. Focus is not so much on demographic groups, but the emphasis is on the knowledge, skills, and experience each person has to offer. The experience of inclusion indicates that the employee's values and thoughts are not only accepted, but integrated by the organization and into the organization. And what this integration looks like for, the, for individuals is they need to feel unique on the one hand and you know be their whole selves at work on the one hand, and they need to feel like they belong to that work environment. More than anything else, inclusion is felt. It is a perception. The feeling for those on the receiving end of discriminatory and systemic discrimination and exclusion is not whether or not there was intention behind these acts of inclusion, but the impact. The result is the same whether or not the exclusion was intended or unintentional. Our courses of action need to be thoughtful, deliberate, and by design. And that if we're going to fail forward effectively in the space, we will need plenty of course corrections because well-intentioned ideas and practices can lead to unintended consequences. I need to stress this. Change Management 101 would dictate if we're going to support inclusive communities and inclusive organizations, and if we're going to foresee and attend to the needs of our communities, we need full participation and buy-in from all of our organizational members. And though that includes those of us in the dominant majority. So where do we start? As a first step to addressing um, diversity in our places of employment, we should look at our recruitment practices. Look at how we bring people into our organizations and how we transition them through our organizations through promotions or lateral moves or whatever the case may be. Now, if you're... Um, if your problem is not getting sufficient applications from diverse candidates, keep in mind that you cannot just keep posting at the same old sites or even just on your website and expect diversity to walk through your door. Recruitment has to be targeted, purposeful, and by design. And you can't post at the same old sites and expect different results. Recruitment practices should be intentional and mindful. And what this means is that you'll have to have a plan with goals and measurable targets, some kind of strategy to increase the number of diverse applicants in your candidate pool. If you notice your in initiatives aren't fruitful and if things aren't working, try something else. If you've made a mistake, that's okay. Try something else. Fail forward. If you want a hard example of an organization that has been crushing it when it comes to recruitment and inclusion, look at what Yelp has done. 
This is a significant issue that affects all of us, and it will require collective effort. And keep in mind, we can't use the same old tools to solve new problems. New problems require innovative solutions and new tools, because we're charting new territory. And in order to move forward, we need to try new things. What does it mean to be included in an organization? What does it mean to include someone in your organizational culture and make them feel like they belong? It means knowing things like historically underrepresented groups start to, be, start to feel like they're heard when numbers get up to 30%. It means taking a deeper dive into examining things like involvement in work groups. Who gets the juiciest projects? Who gets to decide who gets the juiciest projects? Participation in decision-making processes. And this doesn't mean saying yes to everything from everyone. There's a difference between voicing and voting. Access to information and resources. Does everyone in your organization know where to look for information? And if they don't, do they know who to ask? Can they ask without negative consequences. Think about the role of psychological safety in this. So what does diversity and inclusion have to do with Kaizen innovation and impact? And if you're looking to build a business case, this is why I include statistics. Um, your organization's ability to in innovate increases by 83%. Responsiveness to changing customer needs increases by 31%. Team collaboration increases by 42%. A, a diverse workforce is less vulnerable to change. By including a truly inclusive organization, you can foster a culture of adaptive resilience, enabling your staff, your colleagues to add value and competitiveness to your community. And the last one is one of my favorite statistics, if people can have favorite statistics. Um, a 10% improvement in perceptions of inclusion. So a 10% improvement in just the perception of inclu inclusion increases work attendance by almost one day per year per employee. So think about it this way. If you have an organization with 30 people, you've employed 30 people, that's nearly 30 days a year. That's huge. And this is just... <clears throat> you know, setting, offsetting the negative consequences of absenteeism, what will it have on the positive impact of productivity? And if you want to talk about generating revenue, um, you guys can look at the study la later that Lorenzo and Reeves did. What they concluded, they studied 1,700 um, companies across eight countries right across uh, the globe. And they found that there was a statistically significant relationship between diversity and innovation. Um, in all of the countries, all of the countries. And they looked at China, they looked at India, they looked at the U.S., they looked at Germany, so right across. Um, additionally, what they also found was the more diverse, as in think about intersectional diversity, there was the higher the, the productivity and the better the innovation. So key takeaways, continuous learning and improvement are critical if we are to sustain innovation, and continue to have impact in our communities. Your say-do ratio needs to equal one, as this is the foundation for integrity and trust. Innovative practices and outputs require plural sources of input. Accept and be comfortable with feedback and failure.
Well, folks, that's it for today's episode of The Small Nonprofit. I'm your host, Cindy Wagman, and this show is brought to you by The Good Partnership. As a reminder, if you want more resources around raising more money for your small nonprofit, visit thegoodpartnership.com and download our free fundraising strategy guide. I'll see you next week. Oh,